as God is glorified in the life-giving ministry of Christ, at the same time, he is loving his disciples. We can't separate the love of God from the glory of God. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to part one of Let Us Die with Jesus, a two-part study of the Apostle John's Gospel, chapter 11, from Pastor Paul Twiss. The specific text for this study will be verses 1 through 16. And Pastor Paul is with us on mic today to help sort through this passage. So welcome, Pastor Paul. Would you say John's Gospel, chapter 11, has many distinctives? That's an understatement, Matt. This dramatic narrative of Christ raising Lazarus is the last of seven signs of Jesus' lordship that John provides in his gospel. The title of this study, Let Us Die With Jesus, echoes verse 16 when Thomas, the disciple, responds, Let us also go that we may die with him. For those not familiar with this passage, Jesus had become a marked man, The religious leaders were plotting to kill him because he was creating too much commotion, disturbing their political relationship with their Roman overseers. Thanks, Pastor. Here now, part one in this two-part lesson, Let Us Die With Jesus. We are in John's Gospel, chapter 11, and verses 1 through 16. So if you have a Bible, please turn to John's Gospel, chapter 11, Uh, And I'll read verses 1 through 16. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, He will recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go 
that we may die with him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we are grateful that we can be together this morning and around your word. And we don't take these things for granted. We acknowledge that this is a gracious gift from you. Thank you for the privilege we have this morning of of coming to your word as brothers and sisters in Christ. And as ever, we want to acknowledge our desperate need. Father, even this morning we've sinned against you. We seek your forgiveness. We seek your blessing. Lord, that you would wash us afresh. That you would soften our hearts and open our eyes to the truth. Father, that now you would guide us by your Holy Spirit so that we would see, that we would learn, that we would grow, that we would be conformed to the image of your Son, to the praise of your glory. Have your way with us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in the 11th chapter of John's Gospel, and it is a very well-known chapter. And you all know by now that John's Gospel can be thought of really as a book of, of two parts, maybe two volumes. The first half, the first volume of John's Gospel is what is typically referred to as the book of signs. And we call it that because this first half is punctuated by seven signs. They are essentially miracles. They are what Matthew, Mark, and Luke would refer to as miracles. But John purposely doesn't use that word. He uses the language of signs because he wants every one of these miracles to point you to a greater spiritual reality. It's what a sign does. A sign points you towards something else. And John refers to the miracles in the first half of the gospel as signs He wants each and every one of them to direct you to a greater theological reality. The second half of John's Gospel, Volume 2, is what is often called the Book of Glory. And that begins just after chapter 12. And for the most part, it consists of Jesus speaking to his disciples in the upper room. He's preparing them. He's teaching them. He's telling them about his forthcoming death. He's telling them about the the fact that the Spirit will come and minister to them when he is gone. And then, of course, it ends with his death and his resurrection. In that way, John's gospel parallels, in many ways, the, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And what I mean by that is the first half of the gospel is very much concerned with Jesus showing himself to be the Son of God. It's his public ministry. He's out amongst the crowds and he's demonstrating who he is for everyone to see. The second half of the gospel, similar to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is when he retreats, he withdraws. And he spends some time investing, as it were, in his disciples. He's now focusing on them, giving them teaching, specifically answering the question, what does it mean that Jesus is the Son of God and the Son of God that will die? Now, with that being said, this, chapter 11, the raising of Lazarus, is the seventh sign in John's gospel. It is the last sign. In many ways, this chapter, and perhaps chapter 12 as well, we might put in there, function as a hinge in the gospel. This is now the transition. 
we're going to very quickly move out of the public ministry of Jesus towards the private ministry in the upper room. We're at that turning point in John's gospel. And one thing that we might say, given that this is the seventh and the final sign in John's gospel, is that we might expect this sign to be climactic. We might expect just acknowledging how carefully John has chosen the material that he is to present in his gospel, that the seventh sign might in some way be climactic. It might supersede, as it were, all the previous signs. And I think that's the case, and I'll explain why in just a minute. In addition, we might also say that this sign is cumulative. And what I mean by that is it's not only superseding the others in its significance, but it's drawing on the others at the same time. There's a lot that's gone on already in John's gospel, 10 chapters worth of dense, rich theology lived out in the life of Christ, and this sign draws on a number of major themes that have been prevalent throughout the narrative so far. This sign is climactic, it's cumulative. Now here's what's funny, is when I saw the text that I was assigned for this Sunday, when I first saw 11, 1 through 16, and I opened up my Bible, my first thought was, you can't cut me off at verse 16. This is only half the story. If you're going to preach about Lazarus, you have to preach when Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. And you guys are stopping me at verse 16. And then Laura told me to stop complaining and just get on with preparing a sermon. And so I gave my attention to these 16 verses, and within a few hours, I was thinking to myself, there's too much here. We need to break this down into a few sermons. <laughs> and we're going to focus on these 16 verses and see the major themes that Jesus is highlighting and how they work together. There are a number of themes that come out in this short episode that have already been shown to you in the gospel, but here Jesus brings them together and he starts to show you how they depend on one another. Specifically, we see here the truth of the life-giving ministry of Jesus. His ministry is a life-giving ministry, and you would expect that in an episode that speaks about the resurrection of a dead man. But he, he, he joins that truth of his life-giving ministry with the glory of God. He demonstrates to us that the life-giving ministry that he came to, to have is one that puts God's glory on display. And you can't separate the two. When Jesus gives life, God is glorified. And... He shows us that the glory of God is at the same time the highest and clearest manifestation of his love for his disciples. As God is glorified in the life-giving ministry of Christ, at the same time, he is loving his disciples. We can't separate the love of God from the glory of God. And so what we end up with is this wonderful three-part theme coming out in this text of, of Jesus' life-giving ministry, the glory of God as revealed in the Son, and the love of God as given through Christ. At the very end, Jesus makes clear that the only possible way in which you can have any part in this ministry, the only possible way in which you can partake of that life-giving ministry 
that you can partake of God's glory, that you can partake of the love of Christ, is if you go and die with Jesus. He concludes this section by saying that the only way in which you can enjoy this ministry is if you lay all down, forsake all things, and die with Jesus. And so let's just work through the text and see these themes coming out in the episode. It begins, there was a certain man, Lazarus of Bethany. He was ill. He was of the village of Mary and her sister Martha, that's Bethany. And it was Mary, verse 2, who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. Now, what's interesting about verse 2 is that we haven't yet got to the episode where Mary anoints the Lord's feet. That comes in chapter 12. And so John is talking about it ahead of time, before it's even happened. John has all the information, and he's arranging it, and he's writing his gospel, and he knows he's going to talk about it in chapter 12, but he finds cause to mention it here in chapter 11 before we have reached that point. Now, why does he do that? Why, why does he feel the need to mention this episode early? I think the answer is because he wants you to understand when you get to chapter 12 and you read about Mary anointing Jesus' feet, he wants you to, to match the two together, to tie the two episodes together and to understand how transformative was the episode when he raised Lazarus from the dead for Mary. He wants you to understand that at least in part, if not in full, when Mary anointed Jesus' feet, it was a response to what he had done for Lazarus. That this episode changes her life. And that suggests that it should also change ours. He goes on, verse 3, The sisters sent to him, Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Now that shows us that Jesus had some kind of relationship with Lazarus. He's not a complete stranger. He whom you love is ill. Jesus seems to have some kind of relationship with this family already. But even more than that, it's the first hint that we get in this chapter that love is going to be a major theme. Jesus heard it. And he said, this illness does not lead to death. What Jesus is talking about there is not result. He's not talking, he's not making a statement concerning the result of the illness, but the purpose. We know that the illness is going to lead to death. Jesus is not saying, oh, the kind of illness he has is not the kind of illness that results in death. That's not what he's saying. That would be him speaking about the result. He's not concerned to mention the result. He's talking about the purpose. The purpose for this illness is not ultimately his death. But the purpose for his illness is the glory of God. And then he immediately extends that and says, oh, and by the way, the glory of God, God the Father, is also the glory of the Son. When the Father is glorified, the Son is glorified. When the Son is glorified, the Father is glorified. I and my Father are one, says Jesus. This illness is not ultimately for the purpose of death. It is ultimately for the glory of God 
and the glory of God is found in the glory of his son. Now, you may have read over this chapter dozens of times, and it's very easy to skip over these words and not really consider what Jesus is doing here. This is the first time within this episode that Jesus speaks, and his words are worthy of our consideration. Think about how interesting Jesus' response is. If I came to you this morning and said, there's a man in the hospital down the street, and he's ill, and we thought he was going to die, but actually it turns out his illness is not to death, but it is, and then I just stopped and I let you finish the sentence. You would say, it is to life. If I say to you, he's not going to die, but you would say he will live. That's the natural pairing. If Jesus says, actually, the purpose is not death, but it is, we would anticipate him saying life, a declaration that this man will live. And certainly that is what he's saying, but he neglects to say outright, Lazarus is going to live. Rather, he says, Lazarus will not die, but God will be glorified. And so you see what Jesus is doing in a very subtle way is bringing together the idea of life with God's glory. Jesus' ministry is one that gives life. And in the giving of life, there is a manifestation of God's glory. And the two may never be separated. And we understand from our reading of John's gospel that when Jesus speaks about life, he's not speaking merely about physical life. Not merely about a beating heart and and life here on earth, but eternal life. It's the whole reason John writes this gospel that you might believe, and in believing you would have eternal life. Life that is available now by trusting in Christ. And you see just how wonderful is Jesus' response now. He's not going to die. He will live, but more than that, in his life there will be a manifestation of God's glory. Now, this is not new in John's gospel. Jesus has spoken about this reality many times already. He said in chapter 6, I am the bread of life. If you come to me, you won't hunger, you won't thirst, you will find life. In chapter 7, he spoke about living water. If you trust in me, there will be living water that issues from your heart. I can give you that. I have the water of life. In chapter 8, he spoke about the fact that he's the light of the world and that by trusting in him, you would have the light of life. It's already been a major theme in the gospel. What he does here in chapter 11, it is as if Jesus is saying, I've spoken about this life. Now I'm going to show it to you. I've spoken by way of metaphor that I am the one that gives life and in that giving of life, there is glory Now let me show it to you. Jesus in chapter 11 with the raising of Lazarus embodies the truth of which he has been speaking for 10 chapters. You see now how this sign is climactic. It goes further than all the other signs. He now enacts, plays out the truth of his teaching. He's taught us that he is the giver of life. And in chapter 11, he says, now let me show you. And in me showing you, the Father and the Son will be glorified. Now, when you realize that, it does a number of things. First of all, 
it infers that when Jesus raised Lazarus from the tomb, it had a theological significance that went far beyond merely raising one man on that day. That would have been enough that Jesus raised Lazarus and that was the end of the story. But as he teaches in this way, he's suggesting that when he raises Lazarus from the tomb, there is much more going on than simply bringing this man back to life. And people offer a number of interpretations of that. And I don't know that either of the the two main ideas are necessarily wrong. First is that people say when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, it foreshadows what's about to happen with him. I think that's right. This is why we're at the hinge point in John's gospel. Just before we go into the book of glory, we see Jesus raise someone from the dead. That foreshadows what's about to happen with Jesus himself. The other observation people make is that when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, it very much is a message, a picture of the gospel. It represents exactly what Jesus does to you and I when he saves us. That also is true. We see here Jesus acting out the gospel, as it were, raising a dead, lifeless sinner, coming back to life. And that's exactly what Jesus does with us when he saves us. Spiritually, he has raised you from the dead. And one day bodily, you'll be raised from the dead with newness of life. And so as you take this singular truth to heart, you recognize that God saved you for his glory. And that he is more committed to his glory in your life than you will ever be. God is committed to making his glory known through your salvation. He was committed to it the day that he saved you, and he's been committed to it every hour since. He is determined that your life will glorify him. Now just meditate on that truth. Consider the fact that everything God is doing in your life is for his glory. I think we struggle with this particularly when times are hard, when things don't go our way. We might readily point to the manner in which God can be glorified when things are good. But Jesus teaches us that every hour of the day, Jesus is working out his glory in your life. It may not always be obvious how the Lord can be glorified in your circumstances. It may be that you need to wait a while before you see and understand how God was at work in your life. Mary and Martha waited four days before Jesus showed up. That was a real death. They were really grieving. And then it came to pass that God would be glorified through the death of Lazarus. You're listening to Timeless Truth Today. In this study, Pastor Paul is teaching how everything Jesus did was based on God's glory, his love for God, and his love for his disciples. He didn't segment his life in his decisions. Why do we? Here's a pretty basic question. What motivates your decisions in life? Let's be honest, isn't it usually what you want? That which makes you most happy? Even if you say you're a follower of Jesus, how many of your decisions are based on just loving God or glorifying him? We may only do so until it gets difficult. What if we followed him only to glorify him, to make God look good to the watching world? 
If you'd like to know more about glorifying God with your life, come to TimelessTruthToday.org, TimelessTruthToday.org, select Broadcast, and there you'll find free and abundance of teaching to help you. Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twiss, a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. If you're in the area this weekend and don't have a church you call home, come worship with us. We meet Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. at 200 West Bethany Court in Thousand Oaks. Tomorrow, part two and the conclusion of our short series, Let Us Die with Jesus. I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening to Timeless Truth Today. Today.